Florida. Florida. All right, and that concludes the really major point of the entire course. All right, now we'll go on. All right, that was a joke. Sorry, I couldn't resist. All right, so. Uh, tonight we conclude our four-part course. There's, there's class, there's text handouts. Um, this is not everything there is to know about Ezra and Nehemiah. This is everything we're going to learn about Ezra and Nehemiah this, uh, this fall and early winter. Um, before I look at the material, I want to talk about... That's my bad paper management, not my <laughs> Just so you know. It's, I wanted to give you room to take notes. Oh, oh I see. Okay, it's <laughs> snap. <laughs> yes, I just send it. I send it electronically. How it, pr- how it plays out on the paper is. <laughs> I uh, printed without checking, and then felt like I could have. I could have um, reprinted, but then that's wasting <laughs> more. And okay. All right. So, I want to say some concluding words at the beginning, so I don't get sidetracked and miss out the concluding words. So. Um, so first I want to argue, I guess, that I believe that there is a value in looking at obscure and unfamiliar texts. So in the Jewish world, we tend to come back to the same texts over and over again. It's part of the annual cycle of reading the Torah. So one of, the, I guess, the themes of this looking at Ezra and Nehemiah is to look at things that we don't know, or know in a very cursory way. That's one. Two, the other big point is that there's a value in looking at texts deeply. So we're going to spend this evening on part of one verse. Now, there will be some texts that go with us. We're going to look at part of one verse. Um, I said something to one of my rabbi buddies about this recently. He said, you were working on this verse a month ago. Mm-hmm. I said, yeah, I with pride! <laughs> no, I've done other things, but in terms of the study part, I've been working, I haven't spent the past about six weeks on this verse, and um, I'm happy to be getting towards the bottom of it, and I'm going to share that with you this evening. Okay, that's one. Methodologically, whenever I read a, whenever I study any kind of a verse, biblical verse, I want to know what did it mean originally, what has it meant over the centuries, and what does it mean to us now? And we're going to look at that for using that method for sure with what we're going to look at tonight. All right, so the verse, uh, my, my text number one, we, we saw this at the end last week. We saw, part, we saw this last week, we didn't, and we talked about it a little bit at the end, the point I want to get into now. And all the congregation that were come back out of captivity made booths and dwelt in booths. For since the day of Joshua, the son of Nun, until that day had not the children of Israel done so. And that was a great gladness. So... I want to look at this question of how we understand this here in my declaration that the people did not dwell in booths in Sukkot until the time of Nehemiah. That from the time of Joshua until Nehemiah, no Sukkot. And the reference is celebrating the holiday of Sukkot as opposed to simply dwelling sometime during the year in Sukkot. Right. So right. dwelling when you're when you're commanded to dwell. Right. So ritually, yeah, so the the mitzvah, so I'll say it very just directly. If we read Nehemiah straightforwardly, the mitzvah of dwelling in a sukkah is a new mitzvah in the time of Nehemiah and Ezra. Okay. That's the, that's I think if you look at the text straightforwardly, that's what it seems to mean. Now we're going to see in a moment that People's hair turned green. <laughs> ah! <laughs> it can't possibly mean that. Um, and we're going to look at we're going to look at rabbinic sources, and we're going to look at Bible scholars. And ultimately, before the end of the evening, I'll tell you what I think. Um, I, probably not the last word on this, but it's going to be my last word on it. So, for our purposes. All right. So first, we're going to look at rabbinic sources. Um, so. There's a, there's a conversation about this in the Talmud. So that's, and I love how it starts out, because it starts out exactly how I would start out the conversation. So the beginning of text 2. Is it possible that when David came, they made no booths? When Solomon came, they made no booths until Ezra came? So the question is, is it possible? Do you mean to tell me that David and Solomon and Deborah and the prophet Samuel, and no one else had a sukkah? So, this rabbi, this anonymous rabbi in the Talmud is saying, it can't be. How? <laughs> it can't be. 
Oh, the Talmud takes this position in talking about biblical figures because they want to imagine biblical figures as themselves. So, if we would look at the story of Abraham and Sarah welcoming the strangers into their tent, the story in which the birth of Isaac is predicted, it would seem that Abraham and Sarah serve milk and meat at the same meal. And the Talmud's reaction is, Look first. Yes, it was, no, it was two meals. And they served the dairy at lunch and the meat at dinner. And you, you don't, you, are you telling me that Abraham and Sarah didn't keep kosher? Um, now, I think there is a little, I mean, I am comfortable saying Abraham and Sarah lived before Moses. The rabbis are not so comfortable with this idea. And Joseph, the text in Genesis tells us that Joseph marries an Egyptian woman. The rabbis say she converted to Judaism. How do you know this? Joseph would marry a Gentile? <laughs> the, I mean, it's, her Egyptian name is given there. I mean, he, there is no... He, of the Israelitish people in Egypt at the time, it's Joseph. <laughs> There's nobody else there. But the, the, sometimes the rabbinic tradition works in a bit of a circular pattern. So here... The, the Talmud position is going to be, and the rabbinic, the later rabbis also, it can't be this way. It can't be that the first temple period people didn't have a sukkah. So, let's look at the explanations. Um, Alright, so, um, rather the Tanakh compares the arrival in the days of Ezra to their arrival in the days of Joshua. Just as the arrival in the days of Joshua, the counted years of release and jubilees and consecrated cities encompassed by walls, thus also the arrival in the days of Ezra, the counted years of release and jubilees and the consecrated walled cities. It says also, And the Lord thy God will bring thee into the land your fathers possess, and you shall possess it, thus comparing your possession thereof with that of your fathers. Just as your forefathers' possession thereof brought a renewal of all these things, so your possession shall bring a renewal of all these things. So, it's not doesn't say it explicitly, but what it's saying is, the Joshua there doesn't mean, has nothing to do with building sukkahs. It's that Ezra and Nehemiah brought the people into the new land, Joshua brought the people into the new land, and we're remembering the two times of dedication or rededication. Don't pay any attention to what the text seems to be saying. It, no, I'm going <laughs> to... Ali, I'm going to be convinced by none of these arguments. <laughs> I'll give away the plot to start with. None of these arguments are going to make sense to me or satisfy me. But the rabbis, I think, turn somersaults and backflips trying to make sense out of the text. That their position begins, it has to make sense. It can't be what it appears, what it is saying explicitly. So we're going to find a way to think of it otherwise. Now, the next reading is um, interesting to me because it's a close reading of the text, and as you already know, I love a close reading of the text. So, I love being, when I pick up a reading commentary, it sees something that I missed but was right in front of me. Okay. So, this is, this is, this is just a, my text number two. It's a continuation of the same Talmud portion. Ezra had prayed for mercy because of his passion against idolatry, and he removed it. And his merit then shielded them even as the booth. This is why scripture reproved Joshua. For in all other passages it is spelt, meaning his name is Yehoshua. So we know in Hebrew he's Yehoshua with a hey. But here in Nehemiah 8.17 it's presented without a hey. Yoshua. So what, the, what is being said here? In the first temple period or the first commonwealth, however we want to call it, the major problem that people faced was idolatry. And we have the prophets again and again and again chastised the people for idolatry. In the second temple period, beginning now, idolatry is no longer a problem. There's other problems, but idolatry we're done with. So, we're being told that this has nothing to do with sukkahs, this idea has to do with holiness. And the sukkah here is just a code word for holiness, and that, and that the, 
the sukkah that people dwelled in, the metaphoric sukkah that people dwelled in during the time of from Joshua to the destruction of the first temple wasn't as holy as we're now going to be because from Joshua on they were fighting idolatry now with Ezra. Ezra is leading people to a, a higher madrega, a higher level of holiness. Idolatry is gone. And that's what this is all about. And you should read it that way. Pay no attention to its plain meaning, because that's not what it's all about. And he jumps all over this, this, the missing hay in Yehoshua. And in the Nehemiah text, Yehoshua is missing a hay. This is probably, in my opinion, probably a scribal error. But um, scribal errors present great opportunities for uh, interpretation. Yes? Is the hay representative of God like the way that Avram and Abraham? Yeah, so exactly. A, yeah. So thank you. So Avram name gets changed to Avraham. He gets a hay. So key biblical figures get part of God's name and their name. So Yishai is Yishayahu. So Yahoo, before it was a search engine, was a part of the name of the of the Holy One of Blessing. So Yishayahu or Eliyahu, the prophets get to have God's name as part of their name, or anything that ends with Ael, like Daniel, Daniel, or Shmuel. This is this is, these are good names to have because um, God, your name, you are dedicated to God, and it says it right there in your name. Um, so taking the hay away from Joshua indicates that he was a leader second class because he didn't have the, the devotion to God. All right, so that's what the Talmud says. Now the later commentators continue on, each with their own creative interpretation. All right, so the next one I have here is Ralbog, that's Gersonides, uh, 13th century. Let me just look, I have actual notes. Yes, uh, 13th and 14th century. So uh, it's Ralbag of Rabbi Levi ben Gershon, and Gersonides, or Ralbag. He's known in different ways by different things, depending when it's writing philosophy. He's Gersonides, or he's writing biblical commentaries, he's Ralbag. Okay. So he, his interpretation is at least, he takes the text literally, but not in a focused way. Early generations did dwell in Sukkot, rather that the generation of Ezra and Nehemiah drew closer to God, and through their observance of this mitzvah, than the earlier generations, so it is as if no other generation had dwelt in Sukkot. Okay. So they're the first ones to dwell in a Sukkot with proper kapanah. Okay. Or, or, or uh, paying attention to exactly what everything is, paying attention to the, to the walls of the Sukkah. You know, there's all the, the Talmud. The Talmud. I've been studying Sukkot with some of my study buddies now for quite a while. Well, that's a little different from number two, though. Uh, they said they made no booths here. They didn't dwell in the booths. Yes, no, no. So, so Ralbag is accept. Ralbag is arguing that the Sukkah was not new. They made them, but they didn't dwell like they should. Yeah, yes. They did, and we're going to see other comments. There are going to be other variations on the on this approach. That. Um, they did it right. Uh, the other previous generations hadn't done it right. They did it properly. So, again, Ralbag isn't going to... The Talmud and Ralbag cannot accept the idea that there's a new mitzvah at the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. That, to them, is... That does not compute. So that's, what the, that's why they're arguing against it. It's, just, it's wrong. All the mitzvot were given at Sinai to Moses. We can't have something new. Um, okay, so... Um, so David Altshuler, who is more recent, um, 18th century... Yes, 18th century commentator says, in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, the people made Sukkah their primary dwelling place throughout the festival. In previous generations, people had slept in their regular homes and only visited the Sukkah. That's what the saying, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, yeah, so, it's, 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 so Al is saying, they had a Sukkah, but these people really had a Sukkah. Mm. So it's, it's, again, it, we're going to make sense out of it, 
And we're going to take the language in Nehemiah to be hyperbolic, maybe, but we're going to make sense out of it. And then the Malbim, who's 19th century, um, before Ezra's Sukkot were built only on privately owned land, the time of Ezra marks the beginning of Sukkah, uh, constructing Sukkah on publicly owned land. I love the Malbim. So the Malbim wrote, a, Malbim wrote a commentary of the entire Hebrew Bible, so that after a Barbanel, around, let's say around 1500, to Malbim, nobody writes a commentary on the entire Hebrew Bible. The writing the commentary on the he, he, entire Hebrew Bible business seems to be ended with Don Isaac Barbanel, but Malbim in the 19th century feels drawn to do this. Why? Malbim is writing in reaction to modernity. Industrial Revolution. Industrial Revolution, Reform Judaism, <laughs> Enlightenment thinking, and so Malbim, um, Malbim served many different congregations throughout Middle Europe because everywhere he went he got fired. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so Malbim is in practice for the rabbis it's a it's a running joke in a very limited community. Yeah. My career is just like the Malbim, <laughs> sadly. Um, so the Malbim, Malbim was very firm in his convictions, but he goes from place to place because he, he, he can't keep a job because he keeps saying no when people want to hear yes. Also, Malbim is, um, I think, in many places more literal than the medieval people. So I think he's the beginning of literal... of anti-modern literalism. So, I can switch over to my Jonah material just for a minute. So, the hay has got me, reminded me. So, in in the beginning of chapter 2 of Jonah, Jonah's in the belly of a dog. And then in chapter, the next verse, he's in the belly of a daga. So, in the verse 2, the daga is at the end of the verse. So you you would ask me why what's that hay doing there at the end of the dog? So I would say scribal error, and go on. <laughs> but the, they can't take this. so Rashi takes something from Pirkei Rebbe Eliezer and says this. I love this. So Jonah was swallowed by a male fish. In the belly of the male fish, he was comfortable. No, I don't understand. <laughs> he had a recliner and a clicker. <laughs> the NFL network, I don't know. <laughs> yes, he had a man cave. In the, in the belly of the male fish, he was comfortable. And he was not moved to pray. God caused the male fish to spit him into the mouth of a female fish who was pregnant. <laughs> and the embryos were pressing on the female fish's stomach. So Jonah had less room, and there he was moved to pray. And that was Daga. That was Daga. Mm-hmm. Oh, now. That's with the hay, huh? That's so. Mm-hmm. So, now. The hay spit him onto land. So, 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 the question is this. So, when Rashi wrote this comment, was he smiling? Hmm. He got it from Perkei de Rebbe Eliezer. So I think my opinion is, it's funny for us, and it was funny for them. It's fanciful. You know, were they serious about it? In a narrative sort of way. I mean, but I don't... But then... So then other later commentators don't like this, including Ibn Ezra really can't stand the fanciful stuff. So he says... There is a man who says, I mean, he doesn't even give Rashi's name. There is a man who says, I need to miss this, misses it. Malbim, in his commentary to Jonah, goes back to it and says, that's how it really happened. So, I mean, so that Malbim wants to take, I think, this fanciful Middle Ages story and say, no, it's, it's for real. Now, I haven't read Malbim on Genesis, but I would imagine that Malbim on Genesis says, the Shribbin. <laughs> the Rabbam says it's a, it's a simple story for people who need a simple story, and we as philosophers can understand it in this Aristotelian way. But Malbim is very, it is as it says. Okay, so these are 
the traditional, this is where traditional rabbinic scholarship goes. There's other examples of it, but it's all the same way. So then, I want to see, what about Bible scholars? Academic Bible scholars. So, um, I brought you a couple of examples of these. So these are people whose names you probably don't know. Um, so, um, H.G.H. Williamson, so his friends call him Hugh. I was, this, this I was able to find out this afternoon. Um, so Hugh, Will, Hugh Williamson is, uh, is, was born in 1947. He's still alive, and he's a professor at Cambridge. Um, I watched part of the YouTube this afternoon of him talking about Isaiah. He's charming. <laughs> so I would encourage you, I'll put it in the notes and we'll send it out the, even the link to it. It's a, he has a wonderful, he has a wonderful way about himself. I mean, he's, as a, he sounds like what you expect a British Bible professor to sound like. And um, so he is not, um, he's a major figure within the British Protestant Bible scholar world. He's not radical in either way. He's not radical to the right or radical to the left. He is really mainstream. Um, listening to him talk about Isaiah was enough for me to understand who he is and where he's at. All right, so what does Williamson have to say? Even if booths were erected at the festival before Ezra's time, they were merely part of the harvest aspect of the festival. Now, however, the significance of the booths in terms of Israel's history were introduced. For the first time in centuries, they were erected in Jerusalem as a reminder of wilderness wanderings. All right, so what Williamson is saying is that before, there, I think the shoreline line, what you were saying, they had booths, but they do all the booths just because that's where, that's where they had to stay in. <laughs> you know, so it wasn't, it wasn't as a, you went out into the field and you set up a booth because you're not going to walk all the way home, so you had to, your harvest house. And so Williamson is saying that here, they begin to be attached to the 40 years in the wilderness. Like it was becoming a symbol for the first time. Yes. It wasn't just practical. Yes, exactly. So they didn't need them. So it's going from just happenstance or practical. It's going from a dwelling to a mitzvah. Okay. So that he's, the Williamson is saying, it's it's prospect, it's uh, change over time. Um, I've done reading on the origins of the festival of Sukkot, um, which is more than I want to get into this evening. Um, but there's basically, there's basically two theories about where Sukkot came from, in terms of, I'll say, historical and anthropological approaches to this. So one school of thought is that it is a temple-based festival, based on the offerings, and the other approach is that it's a harvest festival, and that moved to a temple festival, and the other, the first idea would be that it was a temple festival, that the booths were, sorry, I'm not, I'm not being clear, I'm assuming something, all right, so, if you have a pilgrimage festival to Jerusalem, there is no King David Hotel. People need a place to stay. <laughs> people need a place to stay. So that's a, one theory is that people came to Jerusalem and built, put up their tents while there, so they could have a... The Boy Scout Jamboree is probably the better example. Everybody's got to stay someplace, and they're all going to come in, everybody's going to build a sukkah, and that was the beginning of it. There was temporary shelters at the time of this pilgrimage festival. And the other possibility is that it's agricultural and became temple. So those are the two theories about trying to look back. And there's people in both schools of thought. I'm in neither school of thought. And um, there's lots of people over the, over the I think, past 150 years who have done a lot of writing on either one of these two schools in terms of the origins of the festival. Um, so here, so this is what... Um, where Williamson is on uh, on this, um, it's, it's a, I think Williams, Williamson's idea is a reasonable idea, but again, he is not willing to accept the idea that it's some, that building the sukkah was a new activity at the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. 
He wants to say, people have been doing it for a long time, and it took on new meaning at the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. All right, so then we have Joseph Blankensop. I just picked these, there's, I could have brought lots and lots of this material, and um, I didn't want to burden you with lots and lots. You can have two examples of the, so Joseph Blankensop is a professor at, uh, at Notre Dame. He is a whole generation older than Williamson. He, he was born in 27. He's also still alive. Um, but obviously in his 90s. Um, it happens that, Blanken, uh, that uh, Blankensop I've heard speak. I went to a conference at Notre Dame in 1988 on history and memory, a conference for rabbis, ministers, and priests, and he was one of the teachers. So at least for him, I have a real, my teacher. So um, along with thousands of other people, but at least for one day, he was my teacher. So here's what Blankensop says. If, therefore, we are to look for any historical innovation... It is not in the celebration of the festival itself, which is already well established even in the dwelling and booths implied in the very name of the festival, but in the use of the species to construct and cover the sukkah. So, there's two pieces to this. So one, which we're going to come back to in a minute, he says that the festival, the dwelling in a sukkah, is implied in the very name of the festival. So we're going to see that the festival is older than Ezra and Nehemiah. We have a festival of Sukkot, certainly before Ezra and Nehemiah, and it must be dwelling in a sukkah, because what else could it mean? Everybody knows what a sukkah is. How can you have a festival of Sukkot without a sukkah? So that's what, that's what Blankenstein is arguing. It does remind me a little bit of the circular arguments of the rabbis, because he's presuming that we know what a sukkah is. So I'm going to open up other possibilities in a minute. Um, also, he used to blame, because I was saying that in the Nehemiah verse, it talks about the different species that they're supposed to, the, the, the different kind of branches that we know in the Lulav, and his argument is that they're told to bake a sukkah out of those branches. I think it is imaginative on his part. Alright, so now I've told you what I think it I've shared with you two mainstream approaches, the approach of the rabbinic tradition and the approach of the modern Bible scholars. Okay. So, I'm going to take us in a completely different direction. This is the Stephen Bob theory. Okay. So this, is, this theory is believed in um, by me. <laughs> okay. I found this theory nowhere else. Your followers here. <laughs> so, I have to say, I said this a little bit last week at the end, I want to say it again this evening. The fact that no one else is arguing this does give me pause. <laughs> so, either I have this brilliant creative idea, or um, the fact that no one else has come up with it before might mean that it's wrong. But um, there's always. Yes, but I'm still going to push this forward, and um, I will, in the next few months, write this all up, and then I'll be able to show it to people who know more about these things than me, and then listen to them say, wow. Or they'll put their hand on my shoulder and say, my child, <laughs> you are a fine congregational rabbi. Go run a youth group retreat. <laughs> scholarship to the professionals I'm not, or someplace in between alright so here's what I think alright so <coughs> so first my text number 9 this is from 1st Kings this is the part of the dedication of the first temple then Solomon assembled the elders of Israel all the heads of the tribes the princes of their father's house of the children of Israel unto King Solomon in Jerusalem to bring up the Ark of the Covenant of the Eternal out of the city of David, which is Zion. And all the men of Israel assembled themselves unto the king, unto King Solomon at the Feast of Booths in the month of Ethanim, which is the seventh month. Now, first I want to talk about Ethanim. We'll get that off the table. Mm-hmm. So, how many times in the Hebrew Bible is the month of Ethanim mentioned? Zero. You're looking at it. 
It, it, the word occurs nowhere else in the Hebrew Bible. Um, so we know this month as Tishrei. Most of the Hebrew Bible just calls it the seventh month. We talked a couple in November about the months of having Hebrew names coming from starting with the Nehemiah. These are everybody agrees these are Babylonian names. Every, that everybody accepts. So Athenim, we're just going to say, oh, how interesting. But I'm not going to do anything more with it. Just it's the only place where it's mentioned. Um, um, okay, what I wanted to look at. So the temple is dedicated on Sukkot. What is the sukkah? A temple ma'at. So I think here, I think here in the King's verse, I think we're, we're dedicating, I think the sukkah is another word for the temple. I think the sukkah, the word sukkah is another word for what they're what they're consecrating, so if we if we can just restrain ourselves and not know what the word means, so we know it means a sukkah. We know it means a booth, but if you don't know what the word means, it could be. As we know sukkah shalom, all right. We know we know that the, the, the word is used metaphorically to talk about a, a shelter in which we dwell. So. It could be that the word is connected here in some way to the temple. There is no description here of anybody building anything that resembles what we would call a sukkah. That's just not there. All right, now I brought a text that I'm pretty sure you've never seen before. Jews don't read 2nd Maccabees. Jews don't read 1st Maccabees. So, um, do you know why Jews don't read Maccabees? Catholic text that they preserved, and it was a proper full text. But what, what, what about 1st Maccabees? The rabbis hate the Maccabees. So the, the, the so we tell wonderful stories. You're saying politically the rabbis hated the Maccabees? So the, the, the early sages, so let me, let me put it different, I want to put, be, be really precise. So we know the story. The, <laughs> Imagine we just had a holiday in Hanukkah. Okay, I can imagine that. All right, so we retold the story of the Maccabees rededicating the temple in Jerusalem, which I'll get to, which we're going to read in a minute. Brave, courageous, and bold. What did you say? <laughs> the preschool fun, but we're only four years old. <laughs> oh. Long may our story be told. I was thinking of the Wyatt Earp theme from television. <laughs> Brave, courageous, and bold. Okay, that's another. <laughs> You're too young to remember that. <laughs> Point of reference. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 50s television shows. Preschool Jewish preschool <laughs> We each bring different things to the table. Um, so. The Maccabees establish themselves as the rulers, and they become corrupt. Like the Taliban. Or Fidel. I mean, it's, you know, Fidel comes out of the mountains in 1959. He's the revolutionary with the beard. He overthrows the awful dictator Batista, and he becomes a worse dictator. So the, the, the Hasmoneans, as the family is known, set themselves up as the political rulers and the religious rulers, and they become corrupt. The rabbis don't like them at all. My favorite description of this is there's a story in the rabbinic literature that he, uh, Alexander Yanai, which just shows you how Hebrew-loving these Hasmoneans become. There's, Greek names. there's no more Greek name than Alexander. <laughs> I mean, he was a prominent Greek guy. So Alexander Yanai is the high priest, and he does something wrong in the temple courtyard during the festival of Sukkot, and somebody calls him on, and he says, I'm the high priest. And they pelt, them, they pelt him with their etros. <laughs> so this is how bad he was. <laughs> they threw their etrogs at him. We could hurt more than tomatoes. Mm-hmm. I'm happy to say no one has ever thrown an etrog at me. Yet. Not yet, yes. <laughs> That's why you teach after Hanukkah. <laughs> so, um, so, yes, which we'll get to in a minute. Um, so, my point, so, 
the rabbis don't like the Maccabees. They don't want the they want, don't want the Maccabees to see as heroic. So the first book of Maccabees, which was written in Hebrew and is a proper Jewish text, is not part of the Hebrew Bible because of the rabbis wanting to push down on the Maccabees. If you read, if you open Masechet Shabbat and read the part about Hanukkah there, I think it's on page 22 or 23, and it's got this miracle of the oil story that we now have embraced, but it's old. It's, 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 it's not, sorry, it's newish. It's not, it's not as historic as a victory of the Maccabees story. Right. It was added on to give, we can't, I think the rabbis would have got one, like to get rid of the Maccabees altogether. Mm-hmm. I mean, not, not remember this Hanukkah rededication of the temple, but they couldn't, so we'll give it new meaning. We can't get rid of it, we'll give it new meaning. Okay. So, <clears throat> second Maccabees, I brought this text because it said it includes all the elements I'm looking for. So this is, this is originally, this is, this is written in Alexandria, uh, in, in Greek, Koine Greek, like uh, the Septuagint or the New Testament. They rededicated the temple on the 25th day of the month of Kislev, the, the same day of the month in which the temple had been desecrated by the Gentiles. The happy celebration lasted eight days, like the festival of booths. I would put in parentheses, on which the first temple was dedicated. And the people remembered how only a short time before they had spent the festival booths wandering around like wild animals in the mountains living in caves. Now they carrying green palm branches and sticks decorated with ivy. They parade around singing grateful praises to him who had brought about the purification of his own temple. Everyone agreed the entire Jewish nation should celebrate this festival each year. And they do. But it's an eight-day festival just like the, like the eight days of Sukkot. I mean, Hanukkah is... Sukkot Shani. I mean, it's just, it's second Sukkot, and the, the miracle of the oil business is uh, the frosting, but uh, the cake is second Sukkot. What I want to point out is the connection between the temple and the festival of Sukkot. I think because I think Sukkot, the Sukkah, is another word for the temple. So. We have here in my text uh, number 10, you shall dwell in the booth seven days, and all that are homeborn in Israel shall dwell in the booths, and in order that the future generations may know that I made the Israelite people live in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt, I am the eternal your God. So this verse, which we, we, we looked at this whole section from Leviticus last week, and I argue this was added in after the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, and this is the only place where we have any mention of people living in a sukkah. So, in Deuteronomy 16.13, because I looked it up, the festival of Sukkot is mentioned, but there's no mention of anybody dwelling in a booth. Judges 21.19 attests to the celebration of the Chag, but doesn't mention anybody dwelling in a booth. In 1 Samuel 1.3, uh, Samuel's father Elchanan goes to Shiloh and so forth during the Chag. Again, nobody's dwelling in a booth. The only place where the Hebrew Bible mentions the actual construction of Sukkah is in Nehemiah 17, 8.17 and in this Leviticus verse. And as you know, the only person that the entire Hebrew Bible mentions living in a Sukkah is Jonah. Which connects all everything that I know. It connects everything that I know. So, what what do I want to say? So here's here is my belief. One, I think that the sukkah is strongly connected. The festival Sukkot is the temple holiday, and that originally it was the festival of the fall, Yom Kippur and Rosh Hashanah. All this, I think. As, as we know today, is Second Temple period in terms of all its details. I think that, and there was a pilgrimage. They didn't come to the temple three times in one month. There was a pilgrimage to the festival on the festival of Sukkot, and all these offerings were offered there because this is the Sukkot is the temple festival. I further think that when they were people were exiled to Babylon. What are we going to do now? Can we offer sacrifices 
in Babylon. Not physically. No. We can't offer sacrifices in Babylon. We can't offer sacrifices in Highland Park. Without that, we need proper temple, proper priests. The book of Deuteronomy is really strong on in the place in which God will cause his name to dwell. It's got to be in the temple. All right, so what are we going to do if we can't have a temple in exile? So I believe that in the exile, the, t- the pra- practice arose of on the festival, on the temple holiday, we build an as-if temple. And the as-if temple is what we now call a sukkah. So I think that the sukkah was zecher l'mikdash, a reminder of the temple for the people living in the Babylonian exile. I think that when they came back, they didn't want to give it up. And they imbued it with new meaning. Now, let's look again at this text from my text number 10, my second text number 10. Leviticus was written around the time of Nezra and Nehemiah. So I think this, 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 this paragraph in Leviticus was written. I think that, I th- I think that most, most of Leviticus was written during the exile. I, I think my own opinion, some people think it's different people have different ideas. I think that the book of Leviticus, both the priestly code and the holiness code, were written in the exile. And I think that this is um, it's a response to the exile it's just a response to the destruction of the temple, and that what they're saying is, when we come back, we're going to do it right. And how do we know we're going to do it right? We're going to have a really detailed description of exactly how you offer each one of these sacrifices. So I think this, this detailed description we read in the first several chapters of Leviticus was written when no temple existed. You can have really precise instructions when you're not looking at reality, when you're prescribing reality. You're not describing reality, prescribing reality. This is the right way to do it. So that's what I think, that's, that's my opinion about, about Leviticus, what's generally called the priestly source. Now, back to my, I see I put two texts, number 10. <laughs> this is a result of cutting and pasting too many times. I'm changing my mind. So, let's look at text number 10 again. Would somebody like to read it while I catch my breath? Do you want some water? No, no just a breath is fine. Just the, thank you, Larry. The Leviticus text? Yeah, yeah. You shall dwell in booths seven days. All that are homeborn in Israel shall dwell in booths, in order that future generations may know that I made the Israelite people live in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the eternal your God. So, I think this co- this language about being brought out of Egypt is a reference to the second exodus out of Babylon. Thank you. Yes, exactly. That's exactly what I'm trying to say. So I think that the years in the wilderness becomes code for the years in exile. So that when it says wilderness, it doesn't mean the 40 years in the wilderness of the time of Moses, I think it means the years in the wilderness of Babylon. And it's writing their own recent experience into the narrative. Now, I cannot yet prove this. I, one of my next projects is to look up this 40 years in the wilderness, see everywhere else that the 40 years in the wilderness is used. And so I, <laughs> I'll have things to do over the winter. Um, so this is what I think is going on here. I think that the, the festival of Sukkot takes on new and different meaning over time. Um, oh, we don't know a lot about Jewish ritual history. We have limited texts from the, from the period, and we know... Yeah, so we, I, we could put up a chart and I could trace out for you all the kings of Judah and all the kings of Israel. But if you would ask me, what did the people have for lunch? I would have to <laughs> call on the archaeologist. You had Coke. You know, well, we, we, there are ways of looking at it and seeing you know, are there, what kind of bones are there. And, and there's all sorts. Um, I've read a. At the end of. Oh, here. Good, great example. 
Joseph is carried down into Egypt, right? His brother sold him as a slave. We just read this a couple weeks ago. And what takes him down to Egypt? Care. Care. Yeah, what, 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 how are they going to Egypt? This is poor pedagogy. I'm asking you to guess what I'm thinking. Who, who, who are you talking about? Joseph. In, injecting camels into the stories. Oh, they, had, they weren't used for transport for hundreds of years. So the question, yes. Yeah, so the question is, when are when were camels domesticated? Two hundred years later. Maybe? When can camel bones be found in the land of Israel? So this is the kind of question you can go and. If Bernie was here, you'd have an answer for us. <laughs> you know, but we know this. I mean, it's, and it's, it's what I've read. I'm no expert on it. It's not until the 8th century do you have regular camel caravans going from what's now Arabia to Egypt. Going, You wouldn't have the Midianites with camels until the 8th century. Now, the person who's writing the story doesn't understand that they're putting an anachronism into the story. <laughs> Rich and I were talking about this before. <laughs> they don't know they're doing an anachronism because camels are part of their lives, and they imagine the camels have always been part of everybody's life. Why? You know, Toby didn't invent the camel, but people just started using the Why camel. Why just Google? Yeah, that's right. Even <laughs> Ellie has their pet camels, right? Well, throughout throughout the throughout those stories, yeah, no, people have no, people have people have camels, and the Genesis stories, people have camels, so it's. So they're written at a time when people were using camels in that way. All right. So I'm, I'm, I went far afield to go back to get let's get back to here. So I'm saying that the forty years in the wilderness is exile. The sukkah is the temple. Now I am not arguing against our celebration of Sukkot. Not one bit. So I guess one of the, well, I guess one big point I want to make is that the rituals of the Jewish people change over time. You know, so um, if I said, you know, did Moses say Kaddish for his father? Of course. <laughs> well. Yeah, right. Exactly. Ali, exactly. You know, so we know certain. <laughs> yes, we know certain rituals. So I know that I can point to mourning rituals starting in the Middle Ages. All right, and that this is a this one started after this crusade, and this one started after that crusade, and yard sale. All these things, the people who care about origins can point to the origins. Now, I would say origins don't tell us about meaning. So, when I observe the yard site for my father of blessed memory, I don't care whether we've been observing yard site for 500 years or 900 years or 2,000 years. No, I know when I say Kaddish for my father on the anniversary of his death, I'm being a good and proper son. And when I think about him at Yisker, I'm being a good and proper son. And I want to be a good and proper son. Or, I don't... I don't Knowing the origin of the observance doesn't tell me what it means to me today, or what it's meant to our people for hundreds of years. Um, so I am not, for me, in terms of looking, trying to figure out where this comes from. I don't mean to. I'm not anti sukkah or anti sukkot. I'm pro sukkot. <laughs> we should rejoice in our festivals, and I'm all in favor of it. I'm in favor. I made fun of Hanukkah. I celebrate Hanukkah. I mean, the origins, knowing the origins, doesn't diminish the joy of the festivals. Um, but I do want to argue that I'll make my big conclusion here. I do want to argue that the return from the exile establishes many of the realities of Judaism as it develops. So I think that this festival of Sukkot, as we know it, begins to develop here with Ezra and Nehemiah. Last week I talked about the reading, public reading of the Torah, which really strongly believe starts with Ezra and Nehemiah. And we even saw that the rituals that we perform today and the standing up when the Torah is lifted, it's right there in the book of Nehemiah. And the Ezra says a blessing before he reads from the Torah. It's right there in Nehemiah. I think, so that time starts that ritual. I argued back in November that the idea of being a Yehudi, the idea of being a Jew, 
comes from the exile and the return from the exile, and that the Hebrew letters as we know them come back from the exile. So what I want to say, the big point that you should go forward from this class with, is Judaism as we know it begins within the exile and return from the exile. That this is really the formation of the things with which we're familiar. I think that if we were in Jerusalem during the first temple period, we would recognize very little. I mean, I think very little of the things that we would do, we would be able to say, oh, oh. Now, but, um, I know I can go anywhere in the Jewish world today and, and recognize what's going on and pick up what's going on. I can be at the wall on a Friday night in Jerusalem and wander from minion group to minion group and say, oh, I recognize those words. Not, oh, they're singing a melody, I know, I'm going to go over there. <laughs> but I can put the words, I know the, the words, I know. Um, my daughter Abby made Aliyah. She lives in Haifa. She married a fellow named Asaf from Nahariya. So the, the wedding was in Israel. Wonderful time. So Asaf's family comes from, came to Israel from uh, Mosul, Iraq. So we have a new relative, we have Iraqi relatives now. So we asked in the Iraqi Jewish community, rather than having an ufruf before the wedding, the customs have a Shabbat Chatan on the Shabbat after the wedding. So the wedding was in Haifa, and then we went the following Shabbat to Nahariya for Shabbat Chatan. And we went to the Iraqi synagogue in Nahariya, and Asaf had an aliyah, my son Gideon had an aliyah, I had all sorts of people had aliyot, and candy was thrown at all of us. Um, people were amazed how much candy it was, and we realized the candy was being recirculated. Mm -hmm. It was being thrown from upstairs down upstairs onto the people, and then brought and gathered, brought back upstairs, and thrown again. Um, and, and it was, we, 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 all, we all had a wonderful time. So, we were walking out of the Iraqi synagogue, and I was standing next to one of Asaf's uncles, and we walked past another synagogue, and I said to him, what's that synagogue? And he said, Morikai, Moroccan, <laughs> and everything, and a completely like, <laughs> for heathens, completely heathens. No, so it wasn't a rather, rather it was a Mizrahi or a Sephardi versus Ashkenazi. No, no, no we're Iraqi, they're Moroccan. Who goes to a Moroccan synagogue? <laughs> so, everybody has their community to which they cling, and the community to which you cling helps define how you do things. Okay. I've been talking for an hour. Um, comments and questions? All right, now I'll look at two more verses. So the question, the last question, this is just, this is extra credit for fun. So the word, where does the word Sukkot come from? So the word Sukkot appears in the Hebrew Bible as a place name. Okay, so we know in, so in, in my text 11, in Genesis, that the, uh, after Jacob and uh, Esau, the re grand reunion of Jacob and Esau, Jacob journeyed to Sukkot and built a house and made booths for his cattle. Therefore, the place is called Sukkot. Now, this is like after the fact. So it's and why is Highland Park called Highland Park? Because everybody lives in a park. Um, or why is Chicago Heights called Chicago Heights? Out by me, I know why West Chicago is called West Chicago. It's certainly West of Chicago. When we first came to Chicago, we lived in West Rogers Park on Ridge. So it's a glacial ridge. Yes, 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 and, yes. I mean, in Colorado, not so much, but right there, it was. I mean, it, it, and it, it's it, like people ask why did my parents name my younger sister Talia because she was so tall. <laughs> um, <laughs> so that's true. She's tall. <laughs> so every place where a house exists can't be called Sukkot. I mean, so it's a little funny. Now the last verse, verse number twelve. This is we we know this from the from the Torah reading also and from the Agada that Ed, the children of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Sukkot, and they the six hundred thousand men on foot besides children. So we know that Sukkot is so it's it's more than one place, All right? So that um, there's a number of places in America called Springfield. How do you know it's not the same Sukkot? Yeah, why do you say it's not the same? No, this is in Egypt. The other one is over. I mean, we're in different parts of the world. So this it's is not saying that they could have gone from Ramses in Egypt to Sukkot in Israel. No, no, no. This is before the dividing of the sea. This is this is this is right. At, 
This is so far. No, this is the, you know, this is the, no, so, this, I'm sorry, I, I turned it completely out of context. And they, oh, I'm sorry, the, um, the verse notations on the next page. We <laughs> 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 have to turn to the next page to see where the verse comes from. <laughs> I couldn't resist, sorry. Um, so, there, before they get to the, this is the right, this is the first place, this is where they stop for lunch. After they leave, after they leave Egypt, or they're stuck for the first night. So that's there, and then there's another place that that, that, that Jacob goes to, someplace in the land of Israel. There's also another Sukkot on the other side of the Jordan, probably a third place called Sukkot in the Book of Judges, as I mentioned. Another place called Sukkot. Is there, is there a modern-day Sukkot? Not that I'm aware of. There could be. I'm not. I'm not saying, but I think it's a really common name for a place. Um, Uh, Michael Fishbane from the University of Chicago. From the Pacific. Oh, from the Pacific. I'm sorry. I'll, 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 I will switch it around then. Ben Meshek uh, in, in Israel, somebody comes from a kibbutz. He's Ben Meshek. So uh, Michael Michael Fishbane, Ben Meshek of, of North Suburban Congregation Bethel, and also he's a professor at that university in Hyde Park. Um, he says it's from the Sachach to, to cover. That's, that's, what, that's his argument with the, with the, with the origin of the word. Um, the origin of Sukkot or Sachach? So it's the same. It's the double Chach. Sachach. Sachach. is the origin word. And that um, it means covering in general. So it can mean covering. So what I don't know is it, is it a place name first, or a hut first, or a festival first? So the word is used in three contexts: as a place name, as our festival, and as a hut. And which came first? I do not yet have an opinion. Um, but no one does, or some people do. I might have to correspond with my new friend, Professor Fishbane, <laughs> okay. and tell him I raised this question at Temple Bethel. <laughs> Don't tell him Temple Bethel. Not Temple Bethel. No, I, was a, no, I was assistant rabbi at Temple Bethel when I lived on Ridge Road, Ridge, Ridge Boulevard. Yeah, I was at Temple Bethel on Tui Avenue. So, um, yes, so the, the, yeah, I know they they, 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 they move. They move the same one. Oh. It's, it's the same. It's the same congregation. When I came to Temple Bethel, Rabbi Weisberg told me Temple Bethel wasn't born on Tui Avenue, and Temple Bethel is not going to die on Tui Avenue. Like Bethel, like the new Sukkot. There's Bethel everywhere. So yeah, the, the place of Sukkot. Mm-hmm. So the Sukkot in Egypt, why would it have a name that we associate with being Hebrew if it was in Egypt? Is that something that somebody said, or they must have settled in Sukkot for the night because it was sheltering? Or they called it Sukkot because they stopped there. I mean, it, it, it gave it a Hebrew name instead of an Egyptian so name. So in the Exodus story, it says it in passing. It just says it in passing, and it just goes on. So isn't, isn't the word there directional too? Isn't, isn't Sukkota? With the directional? Yeah, yeah, I don't have the Hebrew in front of me. Oh, yeah, yeah. It, it could easily be. I don't know why I would remember that, but that's, that's yeah, No, I'm sure it is. I'm just looking at the English translation. What does that mean? Sorry. Yeah, so it's just, it's just, it's just, no, no, it's just a verse. Oh! When you say, like, if you're going. You're going home, Habaita. This you turn by it into a directional. Or for oh, we'll like, take a bow. Or we'll, no, no, we'll, pick a, we'll pick a book from the Hebrew Bible entirely at random. Yeah. Somebody, I won't say who, tries to flee Tarshisha. <laughs> so this is yes, this is regular Hebrew. Right. Yeah, so, so yeah, I think you're right. It is Sukkot. Yeah. Um, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna leave us with some unsolved issues um, and so I'll, I'll be happy to let you know what my opinion as my opinion develops on these things more fully and um, 
and I, I, I will fully agree that some of this stuff is um, obscure, and the more obscure, the more I enjoy it. <laughs> so, um, it's been a pleasure teaching you and being with you, and I hope we can do more of this in the future. Yeah.